Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 245, Boston's Long Wharf, A Path to the Sea. Hi, I'm Jake. In just a few minutes, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Kelly Kilcrease, a professor at UNH Manchester and the author of a recent book about the history of Long Wharf. Today, Long Wharf is easily missed along Boston's waterfront, but that's because the rest of the city has grown up around what was once considered one of the great wonders of the modern world. From the beginning of the 18th century until the early 20th century, Long Wharf was the grand front entrance to our city, welcoming visitors, sea captains, immigrants, and even enslaved Africans. Professor Kilcrease will tell us why the Grand Pier was built, how the proprietors funded it, and how it's changed over the past 300 years. But before I sit down with Kelly Kilcrease, I just want to pause and say thank you to everyone who supports Hub History on Patreon. Really grateful to have the chance to speak with smart people like Professor Kilcrease and learn things about Boston history that I never knew before. I'd never get the opportunity to do stuff like this without this podcast, and I wouldn't be able to make the podcast without a little help from my sponsors. These are the folks who support the show with $2, $5, or even $10 a month to offset the expenses that go into making Hub History. Knowing that I can rely on them means that I can invest in web hosting and security, podcast media hosting, transcription service, and the online audio processing tools that make me sound so doggone good. If you're already supporting the show, thank you. If you're not yet supporting the show and you'd like to start, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. And thanks again to all our new and returning sponsors. I'm joined now by Professor Kelly Kilcrease. Dr. Kilcrease is an associate professor of business at UNH Manchester with a focus on the history of business and small business development. His previous book is a history of shoe manufacturing in Manchester and he's authored a number of articles about Boston and New England history. He's here today to talk about his new book, Boston's Long Wharf, A Path to the Sea. Professor Kilcrease, welcome to the show. Before we really get started, can you just help get our listeners oriented? If one of our listeners was walking down State Street, they have the old State House at their backs, they're heading toward the Marriott Long Wharf. How much of what they're seeing in front of them looking down State Street would have been Long Wharf in its heyday? Obviously, um, you know, as you're walking down State Street, uh, you you would certainly have noticed that Long Wharf is not long. (laughs) So basically, if you go to um, on State Street, if you get to India Street and you stop at India Street and you look down, you can say, well, this is where Long Wharf started. Is India Street, is that the corner where the Customs houses? Correct. So the customs house will be right in front. It's the back of the customs house. Okay. Um, so you would see the customs house in front of you, but it's probably another 20 yards, 30 yards behind the customs house. So um, th- if you if you took out measuring tape and you measured <laughs> it from there to there, it is approximately a half mile long. Wow. Um, so, you know, to think about someone actually built um, a wharf that's a half a mile long, during the early 1700s, it's pretty amazing uh, feat. Uh, so yeah, yeah, that's the that's the length. You know, it's hard to picture 
a half mile wharf coming from that spot because the rest of Boston is so transformed around where Long Wharf was. So can you also just give our listeners a picture of what the area known as Bindles Cove or the Great Cove before any landfill, any wharfing out, what was the geography of that area like originally? Again, if you're if you're looking around, you know, the mid 1600s, 1640s, you would have had uh, Bindles Cove, and to the left of that would have been Fort Hill, and to the right of that would have been the uh, the Mill Hill, uh, Mill Hill, excuse me. So the population was again just from Bindles Cove um, and 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 moving inland. You know, I'm going to say in, in city terms today, uh, three or four blocks. You know, there, there simply put, there, there, there wasn't much there. And so, um, as we as we look at the cove in and of itself, um, again, there's really only a few what we call quote unquote piers, uh, and 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 not much more. Uh, so, you know, Boston is really trying to find its uh, its 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 feet, so to speak, as a um, uh, you know, a, a, as an economy relative to the ocean. And so, you know, the town dock, uh, the town cove, that's the, the town dock was really, uh, really a central, one of the first central locations because that was really the main dock that vessels would go to and fro. Uh, but for the most part, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about a small, I won't even say town, almost a small community <laughs> putting it, you know, going in place. And I, I noted you, you sort of drew a benchmark in the 1640s. Is that because of – there's a law mentioned in the book, the 1641 riparian law, which I hadn't heard of before reading the book. What did that do to sort of set the transformation of Boston in motion? This was basically a law that gave property – people who owned property on the shoreline itself, it basically gave them the right – to uh, control that shoreline up to, I believe, I'll have to kind of recollect, but I think it's around 1,600 feet, 1,650 feet, give or take, uh, from the high tide line. So um, essentially, what what they were doing is setting it up so if you own that prop, that shoreline, you did have the right to go ahead and make a a pier uh, or a wharf. And so uh, that was really the, the the meaning behind it. But you could not go past the sixteen hundred feet. Hmm. So that was you know, and obviously Long Wharf went well past that. And so as I wrote it in the book, uh, technically Long Wharf was created by breaking the law. But you know, the the merchants had the money and the power, so they were able to, you know to 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 get a, to get around that. So yeah, uh, that's really what the law was in place for uh, to give the give those people uh, who own those property uh, on the shoreline the right to actually make uh, a wharf or a pier. So that sets this period of wharfing out or transformation along the waterfront in motion. And before the Long Wharf, one of the biggest projects is the Barricado, which I've only barely been aware. I see it on old maps. And I'm browsing at the Leventhal Map Center, but I've only barely been aware of what it was. So. What was yeah, it? you know, I, I would say out of all the research I did, I, I found this to be the most fascinating. Uh, I had heard of it uh, and I had seen the photos, but I haven't really heard the story behind it, you know, other than the, the, the drawings and so forth. So essentially, this was going to be a kind of a wharfish like structure, but its intention was to set up the defense for the the town of Boston. So, you know, ships just couldn't come flying in uh, out of nowhere. Um, and, and this was going to slow it down. So basically, this is a, um, a horizontal line. It's circular, but, but in essence, a horizontal line that went from one end of the cove to the other end. 
And so within that horizontal line, there were going to be gaps. Now, the line itself was going to be basically fill. So what 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 this area had um, at the time was a lot we call mudflats. And so mudflats, as, as the name's implying, it's mud. So when the tide goes out, you can basically walk out, you know, well out into the uh, into the harbor, uh, into the cove. Uh, so again, the idea was, well, let's build something on the mudflats that will protect us. What was created was um, a structure that was basically stones, bricks, sticks, weeds, anything that you could pack up and and create a structure, that's how it was being created. So you're not talking about, you know, something that was going to be lasting for very long to begin with. It was going to be more of just this um uh this structure that was going to prevent people from coming in and out of the uh, of the harbor. Now, this was not going to work for very long though. So the uh, the town fathers basically said, well, we need people to invest in this create something that's even better. And sure enough, um, you know, again, some of the merchants did come together and they said, well, we'll help doing so and we'll help doing this. And they took ownership of the Barricado. Um, and uh, that was kind of the behind the behind the scenes was, was that the thought was that these merchants would use the Barricado as a landing spot for goods and trade. Um, and so they would make out the town to get protection and everybody would be happy. So that was the initial thought behind it um, and, and the creation behind it. Um, and as I said, it's diagonal, excuse me, uh, it's horizontal, but it's not a fully connected horizontal line. There are gaps in it because you do have to have gaps so you can allow vessels to come in and out. But at least the the hostile or potentially hostile French and Dutch that are nearby and much larger settlements at the time couldn't just come sailing in and drop off troops at the foot of the the street. And I should also put, you know, that viewpoint of, you know, vessels from Holland, vessels from France coming in was completely erroneous. It was overkill. <laughs> it was still the uh, the idea that it could happen. They wanted that protection. And then after a few decades, I guess the barricado starts to fall apart. <laughs> Correct. So and and it falls apart because the proprietors did not do a do a thing. They said they were going to do all these things and they didn't do anything. And so what happens is, is that the vessels heading out of the cove and going towards the ocean, they would stop at the barricado and pick up the stones from the barricado and use it for ballast. And so slowly but surely, the barricado starts to erode from all of these vessels taking these stones. And um, again, just to kind of show you how slapdash everything was, uh, one part of the barricado was a ship that had sunk, and they took the whole of the ship and they just threw it on top of the barricado, um, you know, as a as a kind of a piece of it, so to speak, to say, well, the structure is fine. But but again, it's just really, you know, in today's terms, it's duct tape and glue, and it just it wasn't going to last very long uh, in that respect. I had no idea how much ballast transformed Boston. I had an interview a few weeks ago, I guess a couple months ago on the podcast now with Pavla Shimkova, who wrote a kind of an industrial history of the Boston Harbor Islands. And so many of the Harbor Islands were very transformed by ships heading out in ballast and taking away stones from Deer Island, from Nix's mate, from George's Island. It's amazing. With the Barracado being picked clean by outgoing ships and not really being maintained by the proprietors who said they would there, it seems like there gets to be this need of, well, where will we have the ship's land? So who, who first proposes the idea of a wharf to go out through the line of the Barricado? 
Again, I think the backdrop on all this is that if the Barricado didn't exist, more than likely Long Wharf wouldn't exist. Uh, and certainly later on, as we may discuss, T-Wharf would not have existed because <laughs> it was a piece of the Barricado. So um, it, it, it does have an importance in that regards. But the local government certainly saw that there was a problem here uh, in terms of the structure itself. And, you know, they brought everybody in, the grand court, so to speak, brought everybody in uh, and the selectmen brought everybody in who are investors and said, listen, you've got to do something um, and you got three years to get it done. And three years come and go. And they said, listen, we, it's too late. We can't, you know, the, the priority says we, can, we can't do anything. So entering is this individual by the name of Henry Deering. Um, he's a, a wealthy Boston landowner, but he's someone who's very connected and really wants to make sure that Boston succeeds. Uh, and he knows the only way they're going to succeed is that they do become an economic entity, um, you know, at the same time. So uh, he comes up with the idea that as an extension of King Street, which today is State Street, um, is that there would be this wharf that was created. And it would go well out into the cove past the the line where the Barricado is now. And so his thinking is if we have a really good wharf, a long wharf, and it is um, operating economically, the Barricado would be recitated and it too would become part of the economic structure. And so he's, Deering is the one that is really credited for creating it. But again, a few years pass, nothing gets done. Um, and now the selectmen of Boston, they're really putting the pressure saying, listen, something's got to be done. And so it's Oliver Nose, uh, who comes in, uh, who is a physician, same, very similar to Deering, very, you know, connected to the community. Uh, but he's also uh, a, a wealthy merchant at the same time. And he's the one that really takes Deering's idea and puts it into motion uh, relative to creating the wharf itself. There's a group that will become the proprietors of the Long Wharf, but there's also sort of the rest of the merchant class of Boston. It seems on the face of it, it seems like if Oliver knows and a select group are going to be investing in this wharf that the rest of the merchants would compete or have some alternate plan. But it really sounds like a lot of the merchants were behind this plan. Why, why would that have been? We can look at this from a philosophical standpoint and, and look at it from Deering's perspective. I really want to help my community. I really want to make it a, uh, you know, a, a, a positive economic force uh, that, that will allow us to survive. But uh, for these individuals who are the merchants who ultimately pay for, put this thing together and, and, and use it, they are creating long war for one reason and one reason only. They want to get more rich. End of story. So yeah, there could be, a, obviously there's a little bit, we want to help the community, but the merchants in and of themselves, they are all a very, the ones who are very successful, they're a tight knit group. They all know each other by first name. There's no stranger. They are almost in and of themselves a consortium, uh, you know, a, 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 a corporation without being a corporation, if you will. And so it was very easy for them to get together and say, boy, this idea by nose, we, we can make some money here. Uh, and we can do extremely well for ourselves. So again, um, you know, in terms of why they're doing it, uh, the bottom line is these individuals, the primary reason for their investiture is because profit was in play. Obviously, the, the economics of Long Wharf change time and time again over the centuries, but the original group, the original proprietors 
it obviously would have been a huge investment. So where were they envisioning or how were they envisioning that they would make that investment back? Where would the profit come from? I would say, and I don't have evidence of this, but I would certainly say their biggest profit is going to be individually there. They all own vessels. So they were going to make money just in terms of the trade would be able to increase much more uh, because of Long Wharf. They would be able to dock more vessels. They would be able to send out more goods. They'd be able to receive more goods. So there was that individual part of it. But then there were other things. Other people who would want to use it, who had you know nothing to do with the proprietors, obviously could. And so this could come in in terms of docking, uh, wharfage fees, um, uh, other fees are associated with if someone wanted to rent. And of course, we haven't talked about, but uh, there obviously were going to be warehouses on the wharf. So, you know, if you wanted to rent the warehouse, you could. If you wanted to sell the goods that you got in in your own warehouse, you could. So, you know, you were basically the these proprietors had a chance to be the supplier and the retailer all at once. So again, they had many arms of income coming in um, uh, due to this investment. It's funny for a reader like me that a lot of the names, when I look at the list of original proprietors, the names are familiar, but they're all a generation older than some of the figures I'm I'm really familiar with. So it's not Governor or Lieutenant Governor Andrew Oliver. It's his uncle, Nathaniel. It's not (laughs) Faneuil Hall namesake, Peter Faneuil. It's his uncle, Uncle. Andrew. Can you just introduce the listener to some of the the men who become this group of proprietors or, or owners of the Boston Wharf? If we want to look at this through the lens of today, you know, you would see these individuals as being what we would call, you know, the captains of industry. These would be these individuals who would be well known. You know, they could be walking down the road and, uh, you know, oh, there's so and so. They, they would, they were very recognizable from that standpoint because of their success. So very successful. So one of the first individuals I would probably point out would be Jonathan Belcher. Uh, and he's probably one of the more famous ones. And I kind of highlight him a little bit more uh, in depth within, in the book itself because he does become the governor um, of uh, New Jersey and, again, very influential. Uh, but but again, he's a proprietor for about, jeez, uh, I can't remember, but probably about 10 to 12 years, somewhere in that range, maybe a little bit longer. And uh, again, he comes from a long listing of merchants. Uh, they have a, not only a ship, but they have a fleet of ships uh, in terms of, uh, you know, their uh, their background and invest a heavy degree in copper mines. So, again, someone who is um, uh, well connected and, you know, this would have been just a, a, an easy idea to make this type of investment based upon his background. Uh, John Garrish, um, wealthy landowner, again, someone who has, um, uh, who has a background, uh, uh, in the shipping industry as well. That's probably the common aspect, uh, with all of these is that these individuals have this background in the, uh, uh, in the shipping industry. One other thing they all seem to have in common is you're pointing out their wealth. And I, I was interested to read in the book that the average estate in Boston at that time was 68 pounds, so to the average value of right. a household. How did that compare to sort of the level of wealth of this group of proprietors? So from my research, um, I would have said that, you know, on average, the value of the estates, which I was able to get, hovered around 4,000 to 6,000 pounds. Uh, so it was a significant difference. I think the one, uh, the John Garrish was probably one of the more um, wealthy uh 
again, Wolf Belcher was one of the more wealthy merchants. Uh, and he had an estate valued at around 4,500 pounds. So, uh, yeah, the, you know, the, these, these individuals were tremendously wealthy for that time period. So these uber wealthy landowners and shipping magnates and, and captains of industry, as you, as you put it, they're obviously not going to be doing the physical labor of building a dock. So can you talk a little bit about the, the method of constructing the wharf and then who was performing the labor and overseeing the labor? You're right. There, there. You know, you could not have looked in the newspaper and say, "Oh, I need to find you know someone who can make a a, a wharf." Uh, <laughs> there was no quote unquote wharf makers. So most of the individuals who were responsible for the wharf, uh, you know, they 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 were basically good with um, uh, building vessels. Uh, they were good in building furniture. So you know. Y- y- there had, but there obviously for them to put that, you know, that type of work in place, there would have had to have been some form of, um, of, uh, planning taking place. And so at the time, uh, there was a couple of different ways that you could construct a wharf, but the, the, the way that, um, Long Wharf was initially developed was what's called crib constructions. And, and just as the name's implying a crib, um, is, and, I, and I'll give it to you, you know, maybe in two by four language, but, you know, essentially you could have, um, uh, four two by fours and then you would have two by fours going across those two by fours, uh, but like two or three of them. And then you would fill that up with dirt, rocks and so forth. And then you'd put another crib on top of that and you would fill that up. And so you, you would essentially, it's kind of like a Lego. You would essentially be putting one on top of the other, but it has to have fill, um, you know, for it to maintain itself and, and to be st- uh, stable. A crib more like a corn crib rather than a child's crib. Yeah, yes, correct. So it, it would be more like a corn crib. And uh, again, as I said, you would just simply uh, fill that all up. And, uh, and keep moving outward. And as I was mentioning earlier, you know, there was a lot of mud flaps. So in this area, so again, which was a good thing. Um, so, you know, the, the crib would be stable from that standpoint and that would help, um, you know, that would help tremendously. So, so again, yeah, it was, uh, it was really kind of piecemeal, but, uh, and then once you've got that structure done, then you'd have a top layer structure, which would be gravel and dirt, uh, and, uh, more wood. And so, you know, slowly, but surely, but, but as you can imagine, this is, this is weighing, you know, thousands and thousands of pounds. Sure. So it wasn't sure. going anywhere. Uh, right. but, but again, it was a very, um, uh, you know, very long process in that respect. So how long did it take? The construction began in 1711, if I read correctly. When was the pier actually completed? Technically speaking, it was never completed because they're always doing something. I was like, my goodness, as I'm looking through the research, it's like, no, we got to do another pylon here. We've got to do another board. And it's just like, my gosh, you know, just no. So, uh, but yeah, um, you know, for the, for the most part, yeah, you're looking at 1711. Um, but you're looking, uh, at about 16 to 24 months, uh, timeframe. Uh, so, you know, again, and I didn't get any really information as far as, uh, 
Um, you know, did they work through the winter as an example and so forth? But, and nor did I get how many people were working, but I, I would say within that time frame, uh, you know, they, they certainly were very productive. And, and the other thing too, uh, as I mentioned in the book, which is interesting, um, due to the great fire of that time, all of the embers and all of the, you know, the, the, what was left from Boston being almost burnt to the ground, they all used that for fill in the crib. So that really did, um, you know, unfortunately, that did accelerate the process uh, at, at the same time. I guess that's helpful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very helpful yeah. fire. Well, and, and you know, it, it was, uh, I, I don't know who came up with the idea, but, you know, it was, uh, geez, we've got this wood that's partially burnt. Let's chop it up and use it for fill. And uh, yeah. Yeah, that, that was the idea. As the initial construction winds down and Long Wharf takes shape, it's about 2,200 feet from the original foot of King Street out to what's now the end of the pier. Do you have a sense of how that would have compared to the wharves in other major American cities or what counts as the major American city in 1711? Right. Yeah. So at that time period, uh, and and again, just the the, the quick study, uh, Manhattan Island had a couple of wharves. But, you know, you could literally throw a rock from one end to the other. Uh, and there was like two or three in that regards. Um, Charleston, uh, which was, you know, obviously a pretty big trade um, uh, area at that time for tobacco. Uh, that, too, uh, the problem with Charleston had was that they were so far inland uh, that, you know, they really couldn't have much. But that, too, was um, uh, one or two wars, nothing there. Uh, Philadelphia also big problem with Philly, of course, at that time was the, um, uh, the fact that they're, they're actually on a river, not, you know, going, but you could get to the ocean via that river. But so that too was nothing that was going to be significant. So this was again for its time. It, it, it's the audacity that they had to create such a long wharf. Um, I, I know one thing in Boston, it would never happen today, <laughs> Right. but, but it, it is just amazing that, uh, something this, this significant, uh, this long, this powerful has been created in this time period. Uh, it is really phenomenal, uh, from all aspects, from paying for it to the engineering of it, to the actually completion of it. Um, you know, it's a wonder of the world for its time period. Now that the Long Wharf is completed, what sort of policies or practices are put into place to wring the most profit out of it? After all, these investors need to to earn their money back. How is that supervised? In terms of what the proprietors can and cannot do, they have pretty much free reign. Uh, they own it. They control it. They set the policy. So the policies that are set are either against themselves or against people who are going to be using the wharf or those who are renting the warehouses on the wharf. If I could summarize all of the policies, though, uh, into one big area, it would be the word or the two words, fire prevention. <laughs> that is the biggest concern that they always have about all of this is fire prevention. And, you know, for example, if you have a, um, a fireplace, you can have a fireplace, but the fireplace has to be created by someone um, who is... Um, uh, who has a skill set to do so, someone from the outside, that's their business is creating it. And, and again, if you have a fire away from that fireplace, and it could be a candle on the side of a table and, and the, uh, wharf finger see, sees it, 
um, you are going to be fined right away. Uh, and, and so they are very, very diligent about watching for fires. Uh, people who are getting rid of their ashes, you know, there was a, there was a process that you had to get rid of all your ashes. You couldn't just, you know, put them in a pan and keep it by the door. You know, you, those things had to be removed immediately. So that was, uh, that was a big point. And, and again, from a proprietor standpoint, if you rented out your space to someone, um, and you know, uh, again, the annual rent initially was around 25 pounds annually, which, Today is around $5,300, give or take. Um, you, if, if that person didn't pay, uh, and of course, if they paid, all of the proprietors got a cut of that. But if that proprietor didn't pay, you as a proprietor, you as the landlord, so to speak, would have to pay the other proprietors. So um, there was a lot of checks and balances there. Um, and, and that's not even dealing with, you know, the rules of ships and vessels, you know, going up to the wharf and so forth. But uh, but again, the, you know, the, the, in terms of just the business of the wharf, you know, th- there were quite a few policies in that in that in those types of ways. And you introduced a term there that I think our listeners probably won't be familiar with the warfinger. Can you yes. t- talk a little bit about what that role was and how it might compare to a modern harbor master or something like that? Took the words right from me. Yes, that, <laughs> that is a harbor master today, but they were much more hands on. And the warfinger would also get a cut of the pay. Uh, so a, a cut of the, of the monies that they would collect in terms of rent and so forth. Um, so, so they were active in the business end of it, but then they also were responsible for making sure the tallies that were, uh, that were done for the, um, the wharfage, uh, making sure, you know, that the items that were coming off the vessels, th- those were all going to be taxed by the, um, uh, by the proprietor, so making sure that was done correctly. And so at the end of the year, all of those things would be tallied, the, the percentage that the Warfinger would get, and the Warfinger would get one stipend at the end of the year. And and that so they weren't paid monthly or anything else like that. They were they got this money at the end of the year. So they were very, very active. They were the police, they were the watchdog, they were the counter, and they reported they, you know, they were in on every proprietor meeting when they met uh, monthly. They were there every month saying what's going on, what needs to be done, and what's happening. So they were the the the, the eyes, the ears, and the mouth of the of the wharf itself. And so as everything is hopefully running like clockwork with the Warfinger overseeing everything, the proprietors are going to be making money from dockage fees that are paid by shipmasters. They're going to be making money through their own warehouses, either renting them out or, or what they're shipping through their warehouses. What were the expenses day to day or year over year for the proprietors? What did it take to keep the wharf up and running? It it never ended. It was <laughs> it, it was just constant. Just about every uh, proprietor meeting, and and again, I was able to ascertain all of these notes for every meeting. Everyone, there there was always something wrong. So uh, again, you got to keep in mind we're dealing with salt water, so the sea and the and the winds were very harsh on everything that was there. Um, uh, you know, again, anything that was metal that was on the wharf uh, was constantly being replaced. You know, lines, cables. Um, again, as I said earlier, the. Um, uh, the, the boardings would typically be rotting out. So that would have to be replaced. 
Um, the foundation, you know, there was a number of times going into the 1860s and early 1900s, uh, the foundation always had to be checked and sometimes had to be, um, uh, you know, needed maintenance. So again, uh, it, it was just constant. The, the, uh, the, the, the warehouses, uh, always needed something, uh, going on. So there was another, you know, 200, $200 again going into the 1860s that needed to be here, $300 here. And so there were some times, there were some years that the proprietors did not make money. They lost money. And so I, I, I kept thinking, you know, particularly by the, you know, the third, fourth, fifth generation of proprietors, um, I kept thinking, my gosh, they probably were saying, what did I get myself into, uh, <laughs> you know, in that regards? It was, it was a little more smooth selling for the initial proprietors because everything was new. But when their, you know, their kids got the ownership and their kids got, and it went on down, you know, it, it, it did become uh, a family heirloom, but also became a, you know, a family expense uh, for a lot of them over time. Well, that raises a, a good point or a good question about how ownership changed generationally. Because we do see familiar names like Thomas Handeseed Perkins, for, who's longtime listeners will recognize from our episode about the China trade, and John Hancock, a very familiar name, <laughs> come into the list of proprietors. So how do they get ownership of a stake in the wharf? How does that change uh, over generations? When the proprietors, the initial proprietors were given ownership, um, they're uh, contractually, uh, they were also given the right to sell the share. And again, each person got one share at that time. And of course, as we move through the, the, the decades, that changes. But but they could either, you know, hang on to the share themselves. They could sell it if they wanted to. Of course, it would they would have to pass the good old boys club there, uh, you know, for they would allow someone else to come in, but they could sell it. They could, uh, or they could pass it on into perpetuity to their heirs. And so, you know, it could go generate. And that, of course, did for about five or six of them. Uh, it would go through many generations before it would finally, uh, you know, uh, weather out. But, but, but it would go all the way through. So they had that right, um, you know, to, to hold it, to sell it, or to pass it down. Uh, from generation to generation. Now, as we get into sort of the probably the second or maybe the third generation of proprietors, we come into a, a period of American history that a lot of our listeners are more comfortable with, sort of the, the Sugar Act, the Stamp Act, the Townsend Acts, the Boston Port Bill eventually. What kind of financial impact did all these various attempts to raise revenue from the colonies have on the proprietors of Long Wharf? It was significant. Um, it got the, the problem as we were just speaking about. The problem was the the number of um, of maintenance issues were increasing at the same time that revenue was decreasing. So it really was a difficult time for these group of proprietors in terms of how they were going to deal with it. Uh, and and you know again. There's no business coming in, so to speak. So this becomes a, uh, a, a most certainly a serious issue. So one of the ways that they tried to, to, to counter this uh, during this time period is to have a lottery. And uh, lotteries at this time were very, very popular. There was a lottery for everything. Um, you know, to go, you know, to try and raise funds. And it seems kind of strange that, you know, all of these wealthy 
proprietors would be having a lottery. It just seemed you know, kind of a strange thing. But it showed the financial, you know, the dire straits financially that they were all going through. This was their only recourse. And so the lottery takes place. They were able to raise money, enough money to actually at least put a Band-Aid on the repairs that they needed to have done. Um, I, I, I don't get the sense that the wharf would have fallen into total disrepair and, you know, would eventually have, um, you know, totally collapsed. But I do get the sense that if they, if that lottery would not have taken place, that again, they would have been years and years behind in terms of trying to, um, restore it. So it was significant that they did take that that action of a lottery uh, going forward. And then, you know, the other things that that would also take place after the war is that a lot of the proprietors started to to invest into other areas, you know, like the trains, the banks and so forth. So the wharf starts to become in terms of an investment more of that secondary, more of, well, now we are helping the community. So it does take on a little, a little different nuance. I'm getting, I'm getting a little ahead of myself there, but, <laughs> but I want to at least, you know, kind of show how things are starting to change really from the, from the revolution on. Well, another thing, another, I think it seems like a big change to me, at least during that period is the proprietors finally become a, they legally incorporate, they become a, a corporation rather than just a series of, a group of partners. How does how does that change their arrangement? Other than Harvard College, my research showed that this was the second incorporation in America. Hmm, wow. Yeah. So, I, and I and I didn't. I don't think I explicitly stated it because I you never know. But but I'm pretty sure it's that that's the case. So it, it was certainly one of the first incorporations that take place. And I actually I, I wrote a, a article in a peer review journal on this uh, this particular subject. So I, I I'll try to keep it a little short. But <laughs> in, in, in essence, what the incorporation did was two things. So one thing was, since as you probably many of your listeners are probably aware, when you become incorporated, you now have legal protection of your personal property. So if something bad happened to the wharf or someone did something wrong on the wharf, these proprietors now could not individually be sued. You could sue the corporation, but now not the individual. So one, there was this legal protection that took place. But the second reason and the main reason why they became incorporated was that now they could get more investors. So now, again, this um, so, so-called stock uh, could be offered to other people who would want to invest, not just this close-knit group of people who held the stock from one generation to another generation. Now, during that time, uh, before they be- before Longworth became incorporated, uh, during that time frame, at least, um, the amount of stock that a um, uh, proprietor could hold, that did increase. So it was no longer one share for one person. You know, there were some that owned 15 shares, some that owned 10, but it was capped. Uh, but now that cap would increase significantly when, uh, Long Wharf became incorporated. And, uh, so, so yeah, that, that was a, that was a really significant aspect. And so that also meant, of course, that Long Wharf proprietors, which were now more than one, could now have another steady form of income. Those people who were investing in the company by buying the stock, that money could also be put back into the um, uh, be put back into the wharf itself for maintenance. Obviously, this must be a time of change in the economics of Long Wharf because we have first the Boston Port Bill and the siege of Boston, which essentially entirely shut down commerce on Boston Harbor, and then we have the evacuation of Boston, going into a wartime economy in Boston. I thought it was interesting to read that. 
During the war, especially immediately after the evacuation, a lot of the shipmasters in Boston turned to privateering. What kind of effect did that have on commerce at Long Wharf? It certainly wasn't something that was going to replace um, uh, the steady income that you would have through regular economic trade. But it did, again, using the Band-Aid term, it did put a Band-Aid on, you know, some of these, uh, some of these, uh, uh, proprietors. Some would not get involved with privateering at all. Uh, they felt it was beneath them and they were going to, you know, go ahead and uh, try to overcome everything uh, through their own investments in other areas. But others were much more aggressive. And so, yeah, they would take their vessels and they would go and seek other British vessels and overtake them, bring back the bounty and sell it just like they would sell it, um, you know, in the warehouses before the war. So it was a, for some of them, it was another fundamental process of doing business. But I would say that I don't think it was at the level that was, again, equal to or even near equal to regular economic business. It was just another process that they could do to make a few bucks. And for listeners who are interested, I'll go ahead and plug. Stay tuned in May, I believe, we're going to have an interview with Eric J. Dolan about his book, Rebels at Sea, all about privateering the Revolutionary War. And we'll be focusing on privateering in Boston in that conversation. It seems like the, the close of the War for Independence more or less coincided with the construction of some new wharves on the Boston waterfront that maybe they weren't exactly as long as Long Wharf or as massive, but they were similar scale and much more competitive than the the earlier wharves. What kind of impact did that have on the the Long Wharf proprietors or the I guess now the corporation? Yeah, it, it was very significant. Um I, again, the competition became very intense. India Wharf in particular was taking a great deal of business uh from the um uh from the proprietors. Uh it was you know, it's new and shiny. It's uh <laughs> it's in a it's in a location that's very advantageous. Um and and of course as we uh, as we move to you know Long Wharf in and of itself, the uh, the city wanting to basically cut it in half uh, you know, Long War starts to stutter. Uh, it, it's no longer looked upon, you know, as I, I mentioned in the book, it, in some ways it was the first outdoor mall in America. You could walk down Long Wharf during, you know, certain times and you could buy anything that you wanted from just about any country that you wanted from silverware to duck to, you know, flour to fine, uh, you know, said so fine china, linens. I mean, everything was there. And now again, it's, um, it, it, it's kind of taken this turn as the economy changes and the people change. Uh, and, and all of a sudden the proprietors are saying, geez, other vessels are starting to go to India Wharf more than ours. And so they, they try to do a few tricks. For example, uh, one of the unique attributes that, uh, Long Wharf had was that it was one of the first wharfs that had, um, running water, fresh water. Uh, at, at all these docking stations. So they had to drill a well for that. And that kind of helped, you know, vessels, which is, we like to have that. So somebody, so they did these little things that would try to get more and more business there, but, but it slowly started to depreciate. Um, and, uh, you know, again, uh, other smaller wars start to, start to come up. Uh, and, and, you know, they all have unique attributes and it's really just a numbers game. Uh, they're no longer the quote unquote big dog. It's, there's these other wharves and, uh, uh, they are slowly taking and draining business, uh, from a, a mercantile perspective, um, for, you know, from the proprietors. 
Now, if you'll indulge me just for a minute, about two years ago on the show, I did an episode about an incident that happened happened during the the drilling of that well on Long Wharf, and oh, some folks who were three workmen were nearly killed. But basically, they ran into swamp gas. But I, I very much focused on the construction techniques and how they kept the water out and how they were trying to drill down into this sort of captive aquifer to have an artesian well. And I don't feel like I explained very well why a well was wanted on Long Wharf. So could could you indulge me just for a minute and talk a little bit about why that would have been important? You have a couple of different things, I think, taking place. So one was, I mean, obviously we're looking for the water itself as a form of consumption uh, for individuals who are on the wharf. That's one piece of it. Um, and if you, if you are on a vessel docked on Long Wharf, you would have, you could go back to your supplies that were, you know, in a barrel, which must have tasted, you know, disgustingly. <laughs> but so, you know, you, you would have that or you would trek into town, um, and, you know, retrieve water, bring it back, uh, you know, going forward. So, so, you know, it, it, it basically, and this was heavy work, uh, it would basically be a very, you know, uh, laborious process. And so, uh, to have a water supply right there where I could basically, you know, walk a few steps, get the water I need for my next voyage, um, or the water I may need for any type of cleaning or whatever that I need to do, uh, uh, in terms of my business, uh, this was a, you know, this was a big, uh, this was a, a very big step in terms of that. Cause again, keep in mind, at least in the initial days, you know, do you want to walk a half a mile of water? So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're at the end of the, uh, of, of the, um, uh, you know, the pier. So, yeah. So I think it, from my perspective, I, it, it was more practicality than anything else. Uh, and then once that well was tapped, then the piping could be, you know, again, strung out and to go wherever it wanted to throughout the wharf. And so, uh, yeah, again, I, as I recall, I, I'm trying to think of the number, but I think that they, the proprietors in, anticipated that they would make around three to $5,000 more a year just because of the, uh, of this whale. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was pretty significant, you know, as an innovation at that time. Um, and again, as I said, the only reason they're doing it is to try to combat the competition, trying to show that, you know, we do have certain, uh, certain attributes that maybe some other wharves don't have. And so that's happening right on the, on the turn of the century, the turn of the 19th century. How does the coming of the 19th century change commerce on Long Wharf. I suppose the coming of the War of 1812 and the the British blockade of North America must have had some impact. Yes. Um so as we as we start to, you know, move along here in the time frame, we would see that uh I, and again, I think I use I use the term in the book, it, it was still business as usual per se. <laughs> so, you know, there wasn't much difference in terms of maybe what was going on in the past. But the type of commerce that was being, you know, that was being transferred was going to be a little bit different now. Um, uh, there is more, I would say, uh, a small shift, not significant, but certainly a small shift that was taking place 
that was um, toward more food items, less towards products that were, um, you know, clothing and material products, because now we could, there were other ways of getting those things, including that they were being manufactured in America. So, uh, so mainly a lot of the products themselves were being, and, and I would also say the vessels themselves, a lot of them were not coming from Europe, but they were coming from other, um, um, you know, other uh, coastal areas in America. So, you know, again, the, the triangulation of trade that would take place was still there, but it was also becoming more of a duality. Uh, whereas in Boston, something would be shipped down to Charleston, as an example, and then tobacco products would be shipped back up, or we would ship to the Chesapeake area and products from the Chesapeake would be coming back up. So it was, or Pennsylvania. So, um, you know, what, what the proprietors are looking for here is the best deal prior to, um, you know, I would say 1812, certainly prior to that, it was, I just need the product. I'll pay whatever we have to pay and I'll pass that on to the person who's going to buy it to the consumer. Now it was more strategically, I can get wheat from Pennsylvania cheaper than I can get wheat from South Carolina or that I can produce it here uh, in Massachusetts. So I'm going to, you know, that's how the trading was going to be done. So I, I would say it became a little bit more pinpoint, a little bit more exact, and uh, maybe a little bit more local per se, uh, with a focus more on food items than a lot of the material things that we look at. It sounds like as the 19th century wears on, not only do things like food items become a higher share of the trade, but the interior trade within the U.S. becomes a more important factor in commerce all along the East Coast. I immediately think then of the the Erie Canal and how the Erie Canal makes New York City basically the home port of a huge swath of you know, from New England to the Great Lakes, basically everything that can can access sort of the Hudson Mohawk drainage, all of a sudden is serviced by by the Erie Canal. Does that competition change the importance of Long Wharf and the importance of Boston as a port city? Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and 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 I'll add one other piece to that too. But but the uh, the Erie Canal that was such a significant event, and I think that um, you know th- those individuals who have wharves. They can kind of see the writing on the wall that they are going to have to shift economically, uh, that they can't just be wholly dependent upon the sea industry for their economy. Uh, that was the, that was certainly the economic perspective of, uh, of, uh, Boston during this time period. And I think once the Erie Canal comes into play and we can move goods from Canada, we can move goods from the end, uh, from the almost the Midwest. And, and, and ship them over. And more importantly, we can go the other way. And so, you know, that was another, you know, that it was a two way street here. And so, you know, places like Cincinnati now becomes significant in terms of hog slaughtering and, and farm production. Um, you know, as we start to move west towards, you know, what we consider west at that time towards Kentucky. I mean, all of these areas now start to become their own economic center. And so, uh, you know, they, they have more choice. It's not just all oh, we need to, you know, if I'm in Western Mass, I don't need to purchase just from Boston. So, you know, we have these other areas developing. And then the other thing, of course, is the rail industry uh, is coming around. And uh, as I note in the book, you know, it's kind of uh, looking at the mirror at your own demise. One of the first um, locomotives ever in America landed on Long Wharf. Uh, it was called it was called the Meteor. 
And uh, that was just the start. So, yeah, you know, the, 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 the point being is, is that now there are more avenues to trade. We have, you know, we have vessels that are in canals, man-made canals. We have the rail industry. And so, yeah, I mean, Boston is going to have to change economically. Um, you know, they can still do some of the same things. But, you know, L- Long Wharf now becomes more, uh, you know, as an example, it becomes a transport station. You can now, you know, you can get on a uh, a vessel and move, and and now these vessels become more what they call the package vessels. So you know they're not just sending along foodstuffs, but they're sending mail and other items. So you know there's a shift that takes place in terms of long wharf and and what's being traded, but also obviously among all of the uh, wharfs on the harbor at that time. Well, it also sounds like with the transition to steam, ships needed different facilities. So if if steam vessels weren't docking at Long Wharf, where where were they going? Right. So, you know, I, I, again, I would still say, you know, India Wharf was still very popular. Uh, the biggest one, though, was T-Wharf. So T-Wharf actually uh, – now, T-Wharf is still connected to Long Wharf. Um, and T-Wharf itself is uh, – you know, obviously, it's right next door. Uh, they are more at, probably at this point in time. They are more the fishing industry. But T Wharf has a fleet, for example, of uh, steamships uh, that are tug vessels. Uh, so they tug the bigger vessels out, and that's all located there. But again, in terms of the steam vessels, uh, there I, I have throughout the book a number of photos still showing Long Wharf servicing those. But you're right, they're bigger. So and Long Wharf now is smaller. So, uh, you know, you're talking, I think some of the, you know, the, the photos I'm looking at, you could, Long Wharf could probably hold, uh, maybe two large steam vessels and that's it. So, you know, again, uh, income is not the big aspect here. So Long Wharf knows they're going to have to make their money with what's on the wharf. And that's where the, the change economically takes place, where uh, the fruit industry starts to set up shop on Long Wharf. Um, and that is all steamships, uh, you know, loading and loading fruit. And, and again, it becomes a very centralized place for not only Boston to get fruit, but for all of Massachusetts. Expand on that a little bit, if you don't mind. First of all, who was moving in to trade fruit or to sell fruit in Boston? And then how did that change the economics of the wharf? Yeah. So, and again, I, I don't know if there was a, um, you, you know, this small change that actually took place uh, versus something that occurred very, very quickly. But it, I, I want to say this is around the early 1900s where the change really took place in terms of the fruit industry itself. So most of the businesses that were, um, or the steamships that were coming in, and that's actually the cover of the book. You can see two of these steamships that are fruit centric, uh, in this regards, but most of them are coming from the Dominican. Um, and, uh, the big company that's on Long Wharf is the United Fruit Company. And it is a, it's a really big company, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, what's, uh, uh, in the fruit industry in and of itself. But there are others. I think I list probably around seven, eight, nine other fruit, um, companies who are coming to Long Wharf from South America and delivering fruit. And uh, again, this is a total, you know, again, this is a totally, totally different perspective in terms of what happened in the past where you had merchants and all these different little merchants stores and all of these different types of products that they're selling. Um, Long Wharf now has changed where it is now this huge, um, uh, basically it's tough to walk on Long Wharf. It's basically this huge building 
that's encompassing all of Long Wharf. And inside the building are two or three different fruit companies. And they are delivering everything from, you know, any kind of fruit you can think of to bananas were probably the biggest ones. But Right. right. And then United Fruit Company, of course, being associated in the 20th century with banana republics in the Caribbean and Central America. Exactly. This was really long war for about 30 years. Uh, really 40 years. Uh, this was their main, uh, their main stay. And, uh, you know, again, it, it, it did employ a great number of people. So it, it did have an economic presence. And, and again, to keep in mind at this time, the proprietors are basically just getting checks from United Fruit Company and these seven or eight other companies. This is how they are generating income at this, uh, uh, at this point in time. And it's all, it's consolidating into one industry, one type of trade instead of all these individual warehouses and individual companies previously. Exactly. Definitely the change uh, has has taken place here. You said that's how the proprietors were making their money at that time. There there was a point sort of at the beginning of the 20th century, you wrote in the book that if the wharf couldn't produce the income the proprietors were after, they'd turn to other investment opportunities. So I thought it was interesting that they still worked collectively but they were investing yeah. outside the wharf itself. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great pickup. Um, and it, that was a, incredibly unique, particularly if you're looking at it through the lens of today, that would be mm-hmm. you know, kind of unheard of other than maybe some nonprofits. <laughs> so certainly they were, uh, they felt that if they stayed collectively together as a corporation, and, and of course, the laws are changing where a corporation can now invest in another corporation. And, and that really occurs in the 1920s. So they, they feel that um, if they stay to collectively together, they're going to have more money to invest. And so it made sense for them to stay together, invest in the railroad industry, to stay together, invest in a cement company, as an example. And so you, you, you would look at they would look at all of these opportunities and, uh, again, collect money that way. And, and they would share that money based upon the ratio of stock ownership. So it was a uh, yeah, very unique strategy uh, for, th- for that time period. And I would also say it does point out that the mission of the proprietors had significantly changed from making money on Long Wharf to doing this as a part of a public kind of a public service. Uh, you know, we're, we're not making money here. And it, 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 it became kind of this chick thing. Uh, oh, I own a stock in Long Wharf. It became this, uh, you know, this, this, this attribute that was, uh, that had meaning that was more meaning on paper. Yeah. You know, I, I, I kind of equate it to it's like having a stock ownership in the Boston Celtics. It, it exists, <laughs> the Green Bay Packers, it exists, but it has no value. Right. And so right. these guys, though, they, they, as you point out, you know, they stayed collective and they did look for value in other areas. So between outside investment and the United Fruit Company, that keeps the proprietorship afloat into the 20th century, and it sounds like into the 1950s, but then eventually Long Wharf is is sold, and then there's a merger with Lewis Wharf and Commercial Wharf. How, how does the proprietorship eventually sort of sink into obscurity? Essentially, it came to a point where even though the wharf itself is now very small, 
it becomes a point that the proprietors just do not see a reason to keep any kind of maintenance. And as we've already mentioned, the competition, even with the fruit industry having been there, uh, that becomes an issue. But the big thing, the big change that took place was that Mayor Quincy uh, initially, again, kind of got this started. Uh, whereas in the, um, uh, in the 1820s, where he was, uh, again, transforming the Boston waterfront, so to speak, and, and again, putting in landfill and, and, and the wharf gets cut in half and the wharf itself now is, uh, uh, you know, for the most part, just this little small speck that kind of got everything started from a, timeline perspective. And now the change takes place one more time where the city of Boston now wants this this district to be more of a tourist type of perspective. And so they're looking for ways that they can actually doing that. And and one of the things is having a wharf with a rickety old building that says fruit uh, is getting rid of that. And so they look at, again, essentially by eminent domain, taking Long Wharf. Um, and, and that basically is what's happened. And so they, they basically, uh, they take over T Wharf. They, you know, they tear down T Wharf, but the city itself decides to keep Long Wharf as a part of this new, this new idea of making that area more of a tourist attraction. And as I put out in there in the book, uh, you know, of course, that meant the construction of the Marriott Hotel, keeping the chart house, keeping a couple of structures on there. Um, and, uh, you know, making that a part of Boston's historic walking tour and those kinds of things. So, so again, um, you know, this was, uh, basically the, um, uh, as I point out in here, the, the actual design and the construction of all of this. But basically, this was the government taking over the actual, uh, wharf itself. I guess part of the, the decline of Long Wharf can be sort of tracked in, the physical shrinking of Long Wharf. Um, yes, I guess it, it's attacked at both ends, and and on the on the shore side, there's the filling uh, of the town cove, and then later the construction of Atlantic Avenue. How how do those change the the landscape around Long Wharf? Yeah, it, it changed it significantly because again, it, we were coming back. If you're looking at India Street on, uh, you know, the, 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 the structure becomes short, much smaller. Um, and as I point out in the book, the, um, Columbus Park right next to Long Wharf, uh, that was once T Wharf. So you can kind of get an idea of what the fill, the landfill did there in that respect. Uh, and, and again, the proprietors at this point, when this was all taking place and, you know, again, in the 1800s, the, uh, the proprietors needed the money. So it was kind of, and, and they knew the competition, you know, this made it somewhat gave them a backdoor out because, uh, I believe they got, I believe they got a hundred thousand dollars for this. And, uh, at the same time, they now had less maintenance because they had less pier, uh, less wharf. So, so it made sense for them to go in that route, um, you know, for this time period. And, but again, this was that, as I mentioned, this was that first step to the deconstruction of what Long Wharf is and was, um, at that time period. And, uh, you know, again, it was that, uh, that kind of that first demise, uh, so to speak going on. When I think about Long Wharf, I associate, you know, it has that date 1711 attached to it. I have strong associations with the British landings in 1768, but, you know, it has a history, a much more recent history too. And I, I was very interested to read about sort of the urban renewal period 
and how even that recently long wharf was undergoing transformations what what are some of the more recent changes sort of the 1960s through the 80s through today that that long wharf's undergone yeah so it was the uh the bra the boston redevelopment authority um th- they were the ones that really got this idea of making it more of a um tourist type of area uh and and they've got it started in that regard so uh and and i and i and i should correct the the eminent domain um that was that was for another structure the, mm. uh, the so the Boston Redevelopment Authority for the most part uh the property along Long Wharf and everything surrounded Long Wharf itself uh that was purchased so the BRA purchased Long Wharf and once they took ownership of it then they started to again put everything into place in terms of what they wanted to actually have. And, and the book has, you know, Mayor White's actions and uh, you know, all of the players under the BRA. And, and as you can imagine, I mean, there was the, the, the political aspect is there uh, in terms of everything going kind of back and forth through all of this with Mayor White uh, in, in, in 1979 and, and, and approving plans and, 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 you know, all of those, uh, all of those variables. Um, so, but, but one of the things I thought was, is, is very unique though, in terms of ownership. So the national Park Service actually owns the tip of Long Wharf. And, and they were given that because um, Long Wharf is a historic landmark. And so, um, you know, again, if there was anything historical that would need to be further displayed or discussed or examined, uh, they wanted some leadership. The city wanted leadership to be able to do that. So, so the, uh, the NPS actually, um, uh, bought the BR, bought, uh, the tip of the wharf for almost a million dollars, $825,000. So, uh, with the understanding that the tip of Long Wharf is actually parkland forever. Uh, so, so that kind of encapsulates it as being a, um, uh, a tourist site, uh, so to speak, uh, you know, going forward. So, uh, you know, again, so from that standpoint, whenever, you know, the, the annual tall ships brigade takes place, you know, Long Wharf is a very central point where people go and look. Um, but, uh, you know, again, as I, as I mentioned, we don't really know about the history of what happened prior to that, uh, which is kind of unfortunate, but, uh, but yeah, so the, the, the Marriott hotel that was developed on there, uh, is a, you know, again, a very important piece. Um, the, uh, couple of restaurants, uh, that are there. And of course it's right next door to a lot of the, um, uh, the, uh, the tourist uh, ships uh, or vessels that go in and out and, you know, show Boston Harbor. So, um, so yeah, so, so today, yeah, it, it is a, uh, you know, it is an attribute, not a significant part, but it's an attribute to Boston's overall strategy of a tourist destination. Well, with that focus today of Long Wharf being a tourist destination, if someone is visiting Long Wharf today and they want to connect with this sort of long and storied past, what should they do or see to get beyond just the Marriott Hotel or the the Harbor Cruises to to see or experience a little bit of the original Long Wharf? Yeah, I, I think you have to use your imagination, um, you know, in terms of doing that. But um, but in terms of those significant events, uh, and and I obviously um, I'm. I visit there all the time and, and I kind of do this every time when I'm sitting down at Long Wharf, um, is that, you know, you can easily visualize, uh, you know, the, the, what once was, um, you know, I have a, a, um, uh, in the book, I have a picture that's 
juxtaposition with a painting of the British evacuating Boston. And the way this picture is set, it, it looks like it's almost the same spot where you can see the British literally leaving Boston. Uh, evacuating. Uh, and, and, you know, the other thing I keep, the, I keep in my mind when I'm thinking that is that slaves were bought and sold on vessels on Long Wharf and in the, um, uh, and in the warehouses in Long Wharf. And, you know, to think that's that, that something like that occurred on right where you're st- sitting is mm-hmm. pretty powerful, I think. Uh, and, and of course, uh, you know, during the American Revolution, the, uh, the British leave at the tip of Long Wharf, just as you would see it now, they leave from the tip of Long Wharf to go to the Battle of Breed's Hill, uh, aka Bunker Hill, and uh, that was, uh, you know, that was the launching point. And to think that those soldiers came back to Long Wharf and they were laying on Long the decks of Long Wharf, bloodied, uh, dying, and they're laying right there, and you're, you know, you're sitting there today, and you can kind of visualize that. Uh, again, I think is, 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 is interesting. And, and as I said, that, that history, that marker of history, um, you know, certainly Long Wharf doesn't get the recognition as if annual hall would or, um, you know, some of the other famous places, uh, uh, you know, in Boston. But at the same time, it does have that, I think, a very good representative history, not only economically, but also socially and certainly militarily speaking, um, of, of the history of Boston. I think, you know, again, it's, it's all right there, uh, you know, right, right there. And you can still, you know, be at those points. So, uh, you know, again, I, I'm glad for whatever strange reason that they did not get rid of the tip of Long Wharf because I think it's a really important piece of, of Boston history and American history for that matter. I don't want to give listeners the wrong impression that in our conversation, we very much focused on sort of a linear development of the economics of Long Wharf, but the book has so much more rich detail. It has stories about the Crown Coffee House, about the reception of John Adams when he arrives back in Boston after a decade or more away from his hometown. And there's, there are so many more stories about the, the Hingham Packet and the immigration station on, on Long Wharf. So listeners should read on to get a little bit more of those, those vignettes of, of life on Long Wharf. Dr. Kelly Kilcrease, if people want to follow you and your work online, where should they look for that? Uh, being a professor at the University of New Hampshire, you can um, uh, Google my name under UNH and you can find my webpage where I do have a listing of, um, uh, of uh, another book uh, and uh, some, some journal articles that are in the area of urban history and business history. Uh, so you can find those there. And we'll make sure to link to a place you can purchase the book in this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 245. Kelly, I just want to say thanks again. Thank you very much for for joining us here today. Well, thank you very much. And and as I I mentioned earlier, I'm really appreciative of this podcast. I listen to it all the time and I'm glad I'm able to finally make a contribution. Uh, So thank you. Oh, thank you. I didn't know you were a listener. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. To learn more about Boston's Long Wharf, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 245. I'll have a link to buy Dr. Kilcrease's book, Boston's Long Wharf, A Path to the Sea, as well as a link to his UNH faculty profile. Plus, I'll link to a few past podcast episodes that I think are related to topics we discussed. 
including the show about the well on Long Wharf, where three men almost died. The one about Thomas Sims and Anthony Burns being returned to the South under the Fugitive Slave Act. The episode where Pavla Shimkova explained how the need for ballast transformed some of our harbor islands. And our interview with J.L. Bell way back in episode 100, who told us about the landing of the British at Long Wharf in 1768. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We are Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop me a line, and I'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. 